You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My. I'm Joe Records. And I'm Pyle Nanabuddy. Today we're talking to Matt Vizzanazzo, an associate in both the healthcare and government contracts practice groups, about the top developments in False Claims Act litigation. As many of our listeners already know, the False Claims Act is a federal law that imposes liability on persons and companies who defraud governmental programs. The federal government's primary litigation tool in combating fraud against the government, and and that's especially true in the healthcare industry. Earlier this month, the Department of Justice announced that it had recovered more than $5.6 billion in settlements and judgments in 2021, and of that, over $5 billion were related to matters that involved the healthcare industry. Yep, and Matt, along with myself and other lawyers at Kroll, including Tully McLaughlin, a partner in the Government Contracts Practice Group, and the co-chair of the firm's False Claims Act practice, along with Nikechi Kanu and Lindsay Gordon, who are both counsel in the Government Contracts Group, we all authored an article that discussed the top FCA developments in 2021, which is published in the Government Contractor and is also linked in the show notes. So on this episode, we wanted to discuss some of the top developments that may be specifically relevant to those in the healthcare industry. And as Joe previously said, the DOJ announced that it obtained more than $5.6 billion in settlements and judgments in fiscal year 2021, which is a significant increase from the $2.2 billion recovered by the department in 2020. So Matt, let's just start off with a little bit of a deeper dive of what our listeners need to know about why that number increased so significantly from $2.2 billion to $5.6 billion this past fiscal year. Sure, Pyle. In short, it appears that the majority of the increase is due to the inclusion of settlements related to opioid litigation and some very large recoveries in that area. In particular, $2.8 billion of the $5.6 recovered in 2021 is from Purdue Pharma's global resolution of the claims against it, including, among other things, civil allegations that the company promoted its opioid drugs to healthcare providers it knew were prescribing opioids for uses that were unsafe, ineffective, and medically unnecessary, and that often led to abuse and diversion. So when you take out the opioid-related settlements, the FCA recoveries actually appear to be more in line with the prior years. Another thing that DOJ's press release points out is that healthcare fraud was once again the leading source of DOJ's False Claims Act settlements and judgments in 2021. In fact, less than $600 million was recovered in matters involving non-healthcare agencies, leaving $5 billion that relates to healthcare industry matters. There were several key areas of healthcare fraud, including Medicare Advantage, unlawful kickbacks, and unnecessary medical services. These were recoveries from providers, health plans, as well as labs and medical device manufacturers. All right, so Matt, let's dive into some of the litigation developments we saw in 2021. Uh, One of the topics, one of the FCA topics we've discussed in this space in the past is dismissal authority. What were the developments on that front? Sure. So under the False Claims Act, Section 3730 C2A, in short, we refer to it as C2A, it allows the government to affirmatively move to dismiss key TAM actions, even if the government has decided not to intervene in that particular case. Courts have been disagreeing over the decades, really, on the test to determine when the government can dismiss. And there were some important cases in this space in 2021. So for the past couple of decades, there were essentially two standards governing the dismissal authority. First, there was the unfettered discretion 
standard to dismiss FCA actions, which was introduced by the D.C. Circuit in the Swift case. That was 2003. Um, other courts have applied a higher standard in the rational relation or valid purpose test, which requires the government to demonstrate that the dismissal must have a rational relation to a valid governmental purpose. And that was introduced in the Ninth Circuit's Sequoia Orange case. Now, traditionally, these were the two competing standards. And oftentimes, other circuits would decline to weigh in and would just say that under either test, the Swift or the Sequoia Orange test, dismissal was appropriate. But in the past couple of years, we've started to see some additional circuits weigh in on dismissal authority. So in 2020, the Seventh Circuit introduced a new standard where the government has an absolute right to dismiss a key TAM action under Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure as a plaintiff in the litigation. Last year, another circuit, the Third Circuit, took a side and cemented the Seventh Circuit's test as the third position in the ongoing circuit split. So in the Polanski case uh, last year, the Third Circuit held that cases seeking dismissal under Rule 41A a court has wide discretion. The Third Circuit suggested that dismissal will generally be granted upon the government showing a good cause. And the Third Circuit determined that these same standards should apply to FCA actions. The Fifth Circuit also weighed in uh, and discussed this, what different standards might apply, but ultimately they didn't land on what the correct standard was in their Eli Lilly case last year. Uh, most recently, just a couple of weeks ago, the First Circuit in the Borzileri case held that uh, district courts must grant government motions to dismiss KETAM complaints unless the relator can show that the government's decision to seek dismissal of the action transgresses constitutional limitations or that in moving to dismiss, the government is perpetrating a fraud on the court. So this is a very deferential standard espoused by the First Circuit deferential to the government, and we'll see if it signals any further movement on the law as more circuits continue to weigh in on government dismissals. And just to put this in further context for our listeners, you may have heard of the 2018 Granson Memo, which was authored by the director of the fraud section of the Commercial Litigation Branch of the Department of Justice, Michael Granston. And this memo directs DOJ attorneys when making an intervention decision to also consider whether the government interests are better served by seeking dismissal under its authority under Section 3730C2A as the real party in interest in an FCA case. To that end, the memo provides guidance to DOJ attorneys about what kinds of cases the government should seek to dismiss, for example, when the case is based on meritless claims or will be overly burdensome for the government to monitor and participate in, like when it has to respond to discovery requests. We've seen the government argue that dismissal is proper because the government's expected costs are likely to exceed any expected gain, and this is often a prevalent issue with respect to key TAMs brought against healthcare defendants, which usually involve complicated claims and billing systems administered by Medicare or Medicaid entities, such that large discovery demands are imposed on the government, even in cases that the government doesn't expect to lead to a big payoff. In other words, the continued litigation that Matt was just describing on the correct standard to apply to those motions to dismiss is really important because it's ultimately a determination of whether the DOJ actually has the absolute authority to dismiss those meritless or burdensome cases, 
or to what extent the courts should evaluate the legitimacy of the government's stated reasons for dismissal. And it's worth pointing out that Senator Grassley last year introduced legislation that, among other things, would formalize a requirement for DOJ to provide detailed reasons when seeking to dismiss a KETAM. That legislation may pass this year, but we'll have to keep an eye out for that. With that, I think it makes sense to move on to the next hottest topic in FCA litigation, materiality. Sure, yeah, so and materiality remained an area of focus. Um, now we're in the fifth year since the Supreme Court's landmark decision in Escobar. There are a couple of litigation updates, but first I wanted to discuss pending amendments to the FCA, which dropped in 2021, and some of these focus on materiality. So Senator Grassley of Iowa, who's always a proponent of strengthening the FCA, led a bipartisan group to introduce a bill aimed at beefing up the FCA. The bill stalled in Congress and then appeared in and disappeared from the infrastructure deal that was ultimately passed in November. But just recently, a version of the bill was passed through the Judiciary Committee. Um, still has a long road ahead of it, but it could be codified. Regardless, it's worth bringing up because one of the originally proposed provisions garnered significant attention was a burden-shifting provision that would require a defendant to rebut a showing of materiality with clear and convincing evidence. Senator Grassley made remarks in February last year specifically calling out the court's apparent misapplication of FCA materiality under Escobar. So while the courts continue to issue decisions under Escobar, it's certainly possible that Congress could intervene and impose a new materiality standard. So that's something to continue to watch in 2022. Materiality is almost always a big issue in False Claims Act litigations against healthcare companies, given the sheer number of requirements applicable to providers and payers that submit claims to the government. Specifically, the rigorous materiality standard put forth by the Supreme Court in Escobar and grappled with by lower courts since, ultimately requires the government or relator to establish that the government would not have paid the claim in question if it had known of the defendant's noncompliance with an applicable law or regulation. There were also a few cases discussing materiality that I wanted to discuss. The first is the ACOM decision from the Second Circuit. The court applied the reasoning of Escobar and it's uh, the Second Circuit's 2020 case struck in the ACOM case, and it found that continued payment by the government after learning of allegations and receiving corrective action reports which contained relevant information demonstrated that the government had actual knowledge of alleged violations, and so it affirmed the dismissal of certain claims on the basis of materiality. The court further explained that alleged violations must be substantial in order to be material, and so that requires a showing that there are sufficiently widespread deficiencies in the contractor's performance that would go to the heart of the bargain. The ACOM decision is particularly significant because it evaluated materiality at the pleading stage. And that's a hot topic, whether the pleading stage is a proper time to dismiss a case on the basis of materiality, and this decision showed that the Second Circuit is open to doing it at that stage. Another case I wanted to touch on in materiality, the Eleventh Circuit went the opposite route of the ACOM court in uh, Bibby versus Mortgage Investors Court. They reversed the summary judgment grant that had been based on a lack of materiality. Now, in that case, under a VA mortgage loan program, the defendants were required to certify that it only charged proper fees under the program, which was a condition of payment by the VA. 
in the event of a default. But the relator alleged that fees were not proper and therefore defendant certification to the government was false. The VA was aware of the alleged improper fees and still continued to pay on the loans, which is why the lower court found that the violation couldn't be material. But the 11th Circuit disagreed and explained that the court must engage in a holistic materiality analysis. And because the VA took corrective measures while continuing to pay and the facts bore out that the VA was required by statute to continue to pay, um, the finding of materiality wasn't precluded by continued payment by the government, even though the VA had knowledge of the noncompliance. And speaking of knowledge, I want to ask two questions about the requisite mental state and the, the standard for the FCA. First of all, conclusively and once and for all, is it pronounced scienter or scienter? And then second, have there been any developments in the past year on that front? Those are great questions, Joe. And as to your first, uh, the more important question, I will frequently hit it between the two pronunciations, but today I'm going to go with C-Enter. So that's the correct answer of the moment. So there are, and to answer your second question, there were some significant developments, and especially in a couple of healthcare decisions. So the first I wanted to talk about is the U.S. versus super value case in the Seventh Circuit where the Seventh Circuit joined four other circuits in applying the Center standard from the Supreme Court's Safeco decision to the False Claims Act. So in the Safeco decision, the Supreme Court had interpreted Center under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which punishes willful violations of that act. The FCA's Center standard is satisfied when a defendant acts with actual knowledge, deliberate ignorance, or reckless disregard as to the falsity of claims submitted to the government. And now the super value court followed Safeco's lead and held that a defendant interpreting an ambiguous statute or regulation does not act with reckless disregard under the FCA when their interpretation was, one, objectively reasonable, and two, there was no authoritative guidance that cautioned against that interpretation. So while the super value panel didn't flesh out the precise boundaries of what constitutes authoritative guidance, it followed Safeco in holding that any authoritative guidance must come from a source, typically governmental, with authority to interpret the relevant text. So this is a significant decision, and it aligns the Seventh Circuit with the Third, Eighth, Ninth, and the D.C. Circuit in extending Safeco's scienter analysis to the FCA. It's particularly notable in the healthcare context, where a lot of False Claims Act cases maybe based on guidance and tests that are less than clear. Another case I wanted to touch on with regards to FCA Center is the Mallory case, which is an important case for healthcare providers. In Mallory, a laboratory that provided blood testing entered into a contract with a consulting company to market and sell blood tests. The consulting company received a base payment plus a percentage of revenue based on the number of blood tests ordered and the consulting company hired independent salespeople as well. The government argued that the volume-based commissions paid by the lab to the consulting company and its sales contractors violated the anti-kickback statute. The jury found False Claims Act violations and assessed actual damages of more than $16 million, which the court then trebled and added civil monetary penalties as well as required by the FCA. The defendants appealed the verdict to the Fourth Circuit 
arguing that the government could not prove that they knowingly and willfully violated the AKS. However, the defendant's in-house attorneys and their outside counsel had warned that the compensation arrangement might violate the anti-kickback statute. And in light of counsel's warnings, the defendant's claims that the AKS was ambiguous were insufficient to reverse the jury verdict that had found a knowing violation. Additionally, the Mallory court explained that the defendant couldn't rely on the fact that its attorneys had drafted the contracts that set forth that compensation arrangement because the attorney subsequently warned the defendant about potential anti-kickback issues. Defendants also argued on appeal that commissions to salespeople can never constitute kickbacks under the anti-kickback statute. The court determined that the language of the AKS did not support that conclusion and cited precedent to the contrary. The court did note that the AKS does contain a safe harbor for bona fide employment relationships, but the safe harbor does not cover independent contractors. So this case cautions contractors against ignoring warnings of counsel with regard to the anti-kickback statute or any federal requirements for that matter. And it also serves as a continued warning for healthcare providers wishing to compensate non-employees for marketing activities. False Claims Act cases must be pled with particularity as required by Rule 9b of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. How was that heightened pleading standard applied to FCA cases in 2021? Sure. So there was one case that I wanted to focus on. It was out of the Sixth Circuit. That's the Owsley case. In that case, the Sixth Circuit provided a welcome decision for defendants with respect to the heightened pleading requirements of 9b. As you noted, Pyle, while there are varying approaches to the particularity that a relator must plead, many circuit courts require that the relator be able to identify at least one specific false claim in their allegations. The Owsley case involved allegations that OASIS data, that's the outcome and assessment information set, was fraudulently upcoded in order to enhance prospective Medicare payments for home healthcare provider. As some of the listeners may know, OASIS data ultimately takes the form of CMS billing codes for Medicare home health providers and must therefore be accurate at the time of assessment because prospective Medicare payments are based on the codes. The allegations in the Owsley case were that a provider outsourced its OASIS coding and the third party was providing fraudulent codes that were not supported by any medical documentation. The Sixth Circuit in the Owsley case dismissed a complaint finding that the relator's allegations detailing the upcoding scheme merely related to potential internal fraudulent conduct but didn't demonstrate the submission of a false claim for payment. And so without this particular identified claim that would provide the defendant with notice of a specific representative claim that was fraudulent, then the claim couldn't proceed. So the Sixth Circuit proves that it's a good place for defendants in the 9b pleadings respect, and it further cemented the split in the circuits on how much specificity is required in pleading. In contrast with some other circuits, including reasoned decisions last year in the Seventh Circuit, which had said that relator doesn't necessarily need to plead the details of specific claims as long as the allegations support the inference of false claims. So depending on the circuit that you're in, you might get a different read of the requirements with respect to 9b pleading. So Matt, if I can ask you to take a look into your crystal ball, prognosticate for us, what should we expect in FCA developments for 2022? 
Sure. So I would expect a continued healthcare focus, as has been the trend for a number of years now. The healthcare industry has dominated False Claims Act litigation. We would expect that to continue. I'd expect a growth in pandemic relief related enforcement after all of the pandemic relief bills that were passed and a likely uptick in actions in general as we emerge from the pandemic and enforcement likely will increase. DOJ statistics for 21 recognize the historic level emergency funding from federal agencies and the fact that DOJ is working with various IGs and other agency stakeholders to identify and investigate the misuse of pandemic relief money. So we expect that monitoring to apply to PPP loans and provider relief funds as well in the coming year. DOJ also noted that the number of lawsuits filed under the KETAM provisions of the FCA has grown significantly over the years, with 598 suits filed this past year. That's an average of over 11 new cases every week. Last year, over $1.6 billion arose from lawsuits filed under the KETAM provisions, and the government paid out $237 million to relators. So we expect this trend in growing key TAMs to continue into 2022. Terrific. Well, Matt, thanks very much for joining us today, and we'll sign off on that note. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Pyle. Been a pleasure being on. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Thank you.